Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week, my colleague, Brooke Kramer, is back with me at the round table to talk about why Christians should care about ending the payday debt trap and how our coalition, the Faith for Just Lending Coalition, is advocating against payday lending. We hope that this episode will be a helpful explainer to you on this really important issue that you may not have heard about before. And to discuss all of this with Brooke and I, we're going to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Gabriel Seguero. Reverend Seguero is pastor at The Gathering Place, a Latino-led multi-ethnic Assemblies of God congregation in Orlando, Florida. Seguero is also the president and founder of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, NALIC, which we will talk more about in this episode. Uh, it is a coalition of several thousand evangelical congregations throughout the United States. He was the former director of the Hispanic Leadership Program and the Institute for Faith and Public Life at Princeton Theological Seminary. Segura's work has been featured in many outlets like the New York Times, NBC Universal, Univision, and uh, in addition, his leadership on issues of young male education and criminal justice reform has been featured on, now this is fun, the Discovery Channel and the Oprah Winfrey Network. Reverend Seguero has served on the White House Faith-Based Advisory Council and the National Association of Evangelicals, NAE, as well as the National Advisory Council of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance. Seguero holds a BA in Spanish and History from Rutgers University, an MDiv from New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and a Doctorate in Divinity from Eastern Nazarene College. Reverend Seguero lives together with his wife, the Reverend Jeanette Salguero, and their two sons in Orlando. Reverend Seguero, thank you so much for joining Brooke and I on Capital Conversations. Glad to be here, Jeff. Glad to be here, Brooke. Honored. Glad to be here. Glad to be joined by Reverend Seguero. Thanks for being here. So, uh, Reverend, let's let's start out with the with with an introduction. Uh, how so? You know, right right before we we were uh, when we were in the the sort of squad cast green room here uh, of sorts before we hit record on our conversation, uh, you you told me something that I, I I love the the sort of pastoral humility of those who engage in work on Capitol Hill when you say oh, I'm just a I'm here advocating just as a lowly pastor before before policymakers and members members of the federal government. So. Uh, uh, so you're a pastor. How long have you been a pastor? And uh, and what drew you into work in public policy, like what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. And so don't tell anybody. It's just between us. No one's listening. No, but, nobody. Uh, I am a pastor's kid. And so I grew up in the church. And so w- that's why I didn't go to a Christian college. And I went to secular university. I was running. And actually was a poli sci major. And wanted to go to law school. Our similarities and, are stacking up. I too yeah. am a pastor's kid. <laughs> uh, see, there, and 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 yeah. and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, uh, no, yeah. And and so um, got accepted to law school, but heard the voice of God say uh, seminary. And so I went to seminary instead and did my MDiv, and then pursued my PhD in uh, Christian social ethics, actually. Uh, and so my dad's a pastor. Um, both my brothers are pastors. Um, my mom's a pastor. I know in, in our tradition, we ordain women. Uh, I'm an Assemblies of God pastor. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I wanted to go into public policy, because really uh, the church I grew up in was very 
committed to compassion ministry, soup mm. kitchens, soup pantries, drug rehab center, yeah. uh, working with homeless people. And so really my first foray was as a member of my dad's church, seeing the local ministries to vulnerable communities. That was mm. really my foray. My dad was formerly a homeless man who had a radical conversion experience, uh, wow. addicted to heroin and uh, Christ transformed his life. And so his whole life is 41 years of pastoring wow. uh, have been paying it forward. And so that's my first foray. And so I'm happily married 20 years this year. I pastored 11 years in New York city. The last six I've been pastoring here in Orlando, Florida, where I live now. And so oh, close to 20 years as a senior pastor and uh, a few years before that working in seminary. Can I ask you uh, to share more about your dad's story? I mean, that uh, just as an anecdote, as you were as you were sharing there, is, is pretty remarkable. When did when did uh, when did he start following Christ, and and what was that journey from homelessness to the pastorate like? Miraculous, really. You know, God's grace knows no limits, and so uh, my dad, I think, started uh, on what they call gateway drugs when he was nine. Uh, sniff, sniffing glue and doing other things and then marijuana. And then in, he was a heroin user by the time he was 16. Uh, and so when he was about 19 or so, somebody presented him the gospel. He was an incarcerated person and in prison ministry, they came to see him. They also taught him how to, how to read in English and in Spanish through that prison ministry. And after he came out, there's a program called Teen Challenge that discipled him and so forth. And, uh, you know, he graduated from Teen Challenge, attended a local church, trained to be a minister, and, and then became a minister. And so I don't just talk about grace, right? I, I, I am a recipient of God's yeah. uh, uh, exuberant grace. And so when we start talking about issues like the one, the ERLC, and we advocate on, it's 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 not just theory, it's it's people like me and my family that yeah. have been beneficiaries. And so for that, I'm ever thankful. It's people. It's not, it's not an abstraction. That's right, Brooke. And, and I think that's, that's important for me as a pastor, right? That every time I go to Capitol Hill or I call a congressperson or a senator, or I meet with the, with the White House, whoever's in, in whatever administration is in power, that the policy for me reflects the people and the community that I serve. John Wesley once said famously, you know, the whole world is my parish. And so we have to have uh, Christ calls us and the gospel compels us to compassion. And I, we who have received grace should also be traffickers of grace. We recently had our friend Heather Rice Minus of uh, Prison Fellowship on. And one of the things we talked about there was their, was their prison ministries and uh, how uh, how amazing it is in uh, in just the span of a few weeks that we'd be talking to the son of somebody who benefited from prison ministry that that changed their life and then uh, you know changed your life too. Uh, recipient of that grace upon grace. Uh, talk to us about uh, the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, NALIC. This is one of our coalition partners uh, on the issue that we're going to talk talk about today and, and many others. Uh, but you're the founder of that, so tell us the story about that, uh, how that coalition came off the ground and, uh, and a bit more about where y'all are today in 2021. So thanks for asking, really. Uh, my wife and I uh, and a group of pastors started it about uh, 11 years ago, and so a little over a decade ago. We really thought that the Hispanic evangelical voice in the public sphere 
needed to be heard around issues of, of the common good, but gospel-centered, right? And so it's the common good from a gospel-centered perspective. Uh, there are close to 9 million Hispanic evangelicals living in the United States. There are 60 million Latinos plus living in the United States. We'll see what the newest census has to say. One out of every four children born in the U.S. is Hispanic. Uh, the fastest growing group uh, among Hispanics or the second fastest growing group is evangelical. And so we felt as we're coming of age, both demographically uh, and numerically, uh, but also in the religious and public sector, we needed to create a network that would uh, put a megaphone to those voices. And so that's why we started NALEC and we worked on issues with the ERLLC and others uh, uh, from immigration to to what we're talking about today. I, actually, Heather, Heather Rice Minus is a friend of ours and we have a partnership with Prison Fellowship. And so we're very committed to to speaking the gospel into the public square uh, for the common good. With, with, if I'm able to say it, with some sazon, with a Latino flavor. And so uh, we are not, uh, we're complementary to all those great evangelical voices who are doing good work. Yeah, well, we're certainly thankful for, for your partnership and all these important issues. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about payday lending. So uh, we, we wanted to have you on this week because this, I mean, this has been an important issue uh, for us for, for, for many years now. Uh, and we're, we're just two organizations, uh, in a large coalition with many other organizations that are engaged in this. And, and specifically, we want to talk about ending the payday debt trap. Uh, and we'll be talking about our faith for just lending coalition that, uh, that we're all a part of to advocate, uh, to advocate for, for that end. So let's just start off at, at the top, because this is the first time that we're really doing a bit of a deep dive into this one issue. So Reverend, um, what is payday lending? Let's just start with like what it is, and then we can get into what's, what's gone, what's, what's wrong with this issue, and, and why Christians should care about it. Well, you know, if, if we were using the Bible I grew up with, the King James Version, it would be one word, usury. <laughs> it's, it's when vulnerable families who often don't have the capacity or people who have the capacity to pay exorbitant rates of interest are often the most vulnerable. There's over 16,000 payday uh, and car title loan stores nationwide. And the, the, the reason we've lifted up our voices is because the loans are often offered at, you know, 300% APR or higher for people who when as soon as they get, that's why it's called payday lending, right? Because as soon as they get paid, they, they're already in debt and they need a loan to get out of it. But the loan they get is at such a high rate that they're really caught in a, in a debt trap. They can't get out of it. And so instead of paying back existing debt or, or existing commitments, they are getting further and further into debt. And so that's what payday lending is. Uh, it usually uh, ends up in getting people and, and families trapped into a cycle of debt. And the reason they do it, I should say, is because if they don't take this loan, they may need to pay a bill. You know, and I mean, mm. water bill, electricity, you know, keep their right, house warm, right. you know, uh, food on the table, uh, 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 a child uh, medical emergency. And so that's when you're most vulnerable for these types of debts because you're you have an emergency situation 
that requires you to get uh, this financing quickly. I was just going to say, too, one of the things that really sets payday lending apart is of how deceptive it is. You know, you think you, for someone that has an unexpected bill or an unexpected expense, you know, this might be an easy way to get a loan and then I can pay it back as soon as I get paid. Um, But what happens is the lenders don't come right out front and tell you, this is a 300% interest rate on this loan. You know, you're going to owe hundreds of dollars at the end of this two-week period or what, however long the, the term for the loan is. And so what characterizes these type of loans, too, is the deceptiveness and the targeting of vulnerable people that may not be financially literate, that may have way more payday loan stores than banks in their area. Um, and it's it's that predatory nature that also sets these loans apart. I think that's spot on, right? There's a predatory lending targeting the most vulnerable. There's a lack of transparency, I think, is is is, is the key word that Brooke just highlighted. There's a lack of transparency. And when we, if you get right further into the minutia about who is the true lender, right? Who's really lending the money mm. and, and why the rates are so high, you know, and people who don't have uh, high high levels of access to banks or or financial literacy programs are really really vulnerable to the to these uh, payday lending um, organizations. Can either of you speak more about the the history of of payday lending? Right, I mean, where how did this come to be that there would be? I mean, wh- what was the number you said er- earlier? Rev sixteen thousand or is it sixty thousand? Sixteen at least at least. Yes, payday and car title loan stores. Look, I live right. in Orlando. I live in I'm some and so I drive down. I'm in Central Florida, right? If I drive down 192, I I can see three or four or five payday lending stores or establishments within a three mile radius, and and I'm usually driving in one of the most economically devastated and challenging neighborhoods on 192 when I see this. And so there's, there is a, there's a, a sense that if you're doing ministry, right? I'm a pastor. You're doing ministry in these contexts. There, there is a, a, what appears to be a targeting of these communities uh, for, for this type of arrangement. You know, just as an example, um, we were on a coalition call the other day with an advocate from Alaska and she lives across the street from one of these payday lending stores. And she was just saying how as soon as the COVID-19 pandemic hit, they put a big sign out on the front of their window that said, no job, no problem, get a loan here. And you can just see how you know something like a, a devastating economic crisis that happens due to a pandemic or extraordinary circumstances or a recession that we had just a few years ago that these predatory lenders target specific people, vulnerable people, specific locations that are most vulnerable, most likely to have fallen on hard times and think that this may be a solution when in fact it traps them in a cycle of debt and poverty uh, that they have trouble getting out of. Um, so, Reverend Silguero, I just want to um, 
ask more more pointedly then for this issue of payday lending that you've kind of described and how it how it targets vulnerable people. Can you kind of talk about why Christians specifically should care about this issue and um, why this is a why this is a biblical and moral issue? Look, I think that for us, the book of Proverbs tells us to speak up, speak up. And it actually says the phrase, the poor and the needy. What does needy mean? I mean, it's 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 uh, you never use a word to define that word, but it means that you have a need. And when people are preying on the most needy, think about this. For many people to secure a payday loan, they have to guarantee that they're going to pay that loan by the next payday at an exorbitant rate. And if they don't, the borrower may have access to his or her bank account and prevent them from, from, from paying rent, utilities, food, or other necessities. And so in scripture, right, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, for those of us who are pastors in the Torah, it tells us that, that workers and vulnerable people are part of the protected classes, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and so if the Bible tells me that part of my moral imperative is to speak up on behalf of those whom the Bible calls the protected classes, Jesus himself says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the captive. Well, these people are captive economically. And so there is a ethical, moral, biblical imperative in addition Usury is something that scripture itself says we should not uh, enable, nor we should applaud, nor affirm. And so as a pastor, as an issue of stewardship, as an issue of my Christian citizenship, I need to be aware of those laws that enable these practices to keep people who are created in the image and likeness of God entrapped in a perpetual cycle of poverty and indebtedness. Scripture says that that often that that the that the borrower is the slave of the lender. Well, this is more than lending. This is predatory lending. This is this is trying to ensure that that person never has the capacity to have a jubilee, to use biblical language, a, a year of liberation, a year to to come up for air. And that's why it matters. And just on a practical level, people who worship in our churches, you know, the 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 debt captivity, the strain it causes on marriages, the strain it causes on children, the emotional toll further exacerbated during a global pandemic. As a pastor, I should care about that. Talk to us about the uh, the Faith for Just Lending Coalition. When did that start and where did it come from? But it started in 2015. And so we're you know going on six years now, and when we started, we we it's a you know ERLC National Association of Evangelicals, the NAE, um, the uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. All these powerful voices have said we have a real problem here that is is affecting large populations and mostly the economic vulnerable. And so what can we speak to from our collective Christian voices? What are the principles of stewardship and what are the the, the principles of of how policies and mercy and grace and empowerment that we can get behind so that we can petition the government and say, listen, 
our voice of, as advocate says that usury that perpetuates debt captivity is not in line with what St. Augustine or St. Augustine, if you're from a different tradition, <laughs> uh, the, the summa bonum, the highest good, what contributes to, to the highest good. And so these collective voices have, have uh, got together and we underline some principles. For example, individuals should manage their resource responsibly and conduct their affairs ethically, saving for emergencies and being willing to provide so- support for others in need. Churches should teach and model responsible stewardship, offering help to neighbors in times of crisis. Lenders should extend loans at reasonable interest rates based on people's ability to repay within the original loan period, taking into account the borrower's income and expenses, and that the government should prohibit usury and predatory or deceptive, as Brooke has said, lending practices. You know, Jesus said in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, if truth sets us free, deceptive lending practices <laughs> captivate us. And one of the biggest push is transparency in the lending processes. And the second one is, of course, non-exorbitant rates for people who can't afford those rates. So, I mean, what would be the, the let's let's talk about some of the advocacy specifics here in the time we have left. What What would you say, Reverend, is the ultimate policy solution, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll compare this to, uh, you know, we were just recently talking about uh, refugee admissions. Refugee admissions are at, their his, at, the, at the most historic low that they've ever been, as long as we've had a refugee program at 15,000. Um, you know, a, a, a sort of ultimate goal there would be to get that number back up to a historic average, 90,000 refugees a year, 125,000, maybe even, right? Let's, let's really shoot for doing a lot of good for those fleeing tyranny and persecution. But it's going to take some steps to get there um, because the pipeline has to be rebuilt, all of that. But like, you know, so so there's an ultimate and then there's like the understandable next steps that we're in right now. So let's start with that ultimate. For predatory payday lending, what is the ultimate policy solution that we would like to see? <laughs> an end to payday lending. That's the That's ultimate. Right. The, That's right. That's uh, right. C'est fini. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking, right, to quote one of my favorite theologians, we all live, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, we all live in the realm of the penultimate, right? But there are ultimate judgments on how we treat our neighbor and how mm. we treat each other. And one of them is not making, you know, slaves of people. It's, you know, modern modern indentured servitude is not, yeah. is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're talking ideal kind of the kingdom of God ethic, eschatological visions around payday lending, that's it. But in the interim, Jeff, you, we, we can start send, setting some limits, which, which we think are reasonable. So one of the things we, we advocate is for the FDIC to tell banks and these, and these payday lending stores to limit rates, uh, uh, interest rates at 36%, right? That's not a low rate, right? It's not, we're not asking yeah. for, you know, people to open the Red Sea, right? 36% interest rate is pretty high, but it's not 300%. And so that's right. one of the uh, things. And the other thing that there should be transparency, that some of these uh, payday stores uh, are, say, are, are, are not really telling them who holds the loan and they're partnering with banks. And there has what, what, what those are people who are in the minutia of the policy call true lending. Right. Who's the true lender? Who are we really dealing with here? We need to break that veil. Um, we should also 
you know, talk to underwriters and say, look, we really need to examine people's ability to pay. We can't set them up and say, no problem, even if you can't pay, because the, the truth is that's not really what we're saying. Even if you can't pay, what we're saying is, oh, if you can't pay, there will be repercussions for a very long time that will affect you, your spouse, your children, or if you're single, you. And so the reality is there has to be transparency. The rate needs to come down considerably. Um, and we need to really look at underwriters and people's capacity to pay and be honest with them before we we, we say we're going to give you this, this loan at this high percentage. Sure. And Reverend, just to, um, you know, jump on that point a little bit, as many people know, when you are trying to take out a loan from a bank um, or get approved for a loan, um, the the number one thing the the lender asks you is, how are you going to pay this back? Show us that you can pay this back. Um, because it's it's risky to to give out a loan and you and you want to know that the borrower is going to be able to pay back. But that is one of the distinctives, again, in payday lending, is that they don't want to know if you can pay it back because that is how they make a profit. The, the lenders only win when the borrowers fail, which is the a complete perverse incentive of what our lending system should look like. So I, I just really wanted to underline that point there because it's so important. And I, I wanted to ask you next, you know, so you've kind of outlined different policy goals that we have and and what we're working towards. But right now, what is going on in the Congress? What um, are we are we working on um, kind of in our day to day, week to week rhythms of, of advocacy? Well, look, I, as you know, Brooke, we're asking Congress around around the Veterans and Consumers Fair Credit Act to ensure that all Americans are afforded this protection on a permanent basis, right? And and sometimes veterans are the most vulnerable uh, to these payday lendings. And so it's the veterans and consumers. Here's the key word. I like this word, Fair Credit Act, right? Not not unjust credit. Act. I think I think that's part of it. As you know, we've been in some conversations uh, with the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We've been talking about uh, not weakening or eliminating the ability to repay provisions. Once you weaken the ability to repay provisions, you know, what you have is kind of a, a, an economic Pandora's box, <laughs> a, a free for all where more and more people, you know, and, and, and so the, as they're, re, as they're, as they're, as the, CFPB, as as the FDIC, as the Federal Reserve Board, as the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, there are provisions that protect the consumer and protect veterans and protect. And, and if we create policy from these offices that weaken those provisions, more and more people are going to be hurt. Look, everybody knows that this global pandemic has devastated people's capacity to make uh, to make income or to pay that debt. Look, I'm a pastor. I've seen the soup kitchen lines grow bigger. And this is not a theory for me. I live this every single day. I see the kids, you know, and, and people would usually take one box, but they need two boxes because they need a month and a half of groceries, not two weeks worth of groceries. On top of that, we're going to limit these rules that put on undue burdens 
are people created in the image and likeness of God? I mean, ¿qué, ¿qué estamos pensando? It makes me speak Spanish. ¿Qué estamos pensando? You know, what are we thinking? We, we have to more, you know, budgets and, and finance. That's a, that's a, that's a moral issue. Jesus said to us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a fascinating thing that Jesus talks about heart and treasure. Jesus taught us that we can't serve two masters, God and mammon in the old King James Version. And so if Jesus taught us this, we as Christians should advocate for laws that are in keeping with our highest scriptural and ethical mandate. And that is not to exploit people during a pandemic, during economic crisis, to exorbitant interest rates, which will keep them indebted perpetually. I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned uh, just, I mean, in, in, in the specific policies that we're working on right now, I'm glad you mentioned the vulnerability of veterans to predatory lending. But I was just going to say, I'm glad you mentioned that because for the Christian, Part of our responsibility in the public square when we're advocating, certainly for us as leaders um, in in civil society, right? Whether we're advocates and, and leaders in this space or pastors like like you are, it's part of our responsibility to help the church always be on the lookout for who might be falling in the cracks, for who might be in the shadows, uh, and the shadows that are created by different societal systems and structures and uh, where the injustices are. And so I, I just have appreciated that in this whole conversation, but then I just wanted to note it there as we were talking about specific policies, even, even noting who could be more vulnerable to these kinds of issues, because that's the role of Christians is to always be asking ourselves, who is my neighbor, right? And that's, just, that's, the, that's, that's the, the, the second greatest commandment. And yet Christ even said, love God, your father, and, and love your neighbor also. And there's no distinction here. We're loving God when we love our neighbor. Yeah, Jeff, to just add context, um, as Reverend Soguero mentioned, veterans are um, one of the highest demographics of folks that use and get trapped in these um, payday loans. And one of the kind of theories behind why that might be is because the Military Lending Act protects active duty military members, service members, um, and allows them to have that protection of a 36% rate cap. But as soon as they are no longer active duty, if they're reservists, if they are military families, if um, you know they're, they're no longer active service and they are um, veterans, they no longer have that protection. That protection is no longer afforded to them, um, which we think is just, one, we think everyone should be able to have that protection of a 36% interest rate cap. But also, again, coming with these just misleading and um, deceptive practices of perhaps military members thinking that they still have, or, or veterans, excuse me, still thinking that they have this protection and no longer have this protection when they become veterans as opposed to being active duty service members. Yeah, and, and, and there's always a temptation. There's always a kind of slippery slope to forget the most vulnerable among us. Comfort is seductive. And so if I'm okay, well, everybody else must be okay. And so mm -hmm. we have to be vigilant. And, and just imagine how many thousands of people, veterans and others, 
with a change uh, by the Office of the Comptroller of Currency would be impacted. Right? And so the, the CRA, the Congressional Review Act, is looking at, are we going to weaken these protections? Are we going to just, because we're not vigilant, you know, as, 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 as the New Testament tells us, pray and be watchful. And so this, this, this complacency, well, I'm okay. No, we have to be vigilant about the vulnerability of our, our neighbors. And, you know, when we start weakening protections that is going to perpetuate debt, it's not just the veterans and the economically vulnerable. Eventually, everyone's affected by this. Right. This this the, the nation is impacted because our moral standing is often most detailed by how we treat the most vulnerable among us. Mm. Absolutely. So, Reverend Segura, where where can uh, where can our listeners uh, get involved and how can they stay in touch with uh, with with NALIC and and with you in your work? Well, first, I want to continue to give a shout out to this to this coalition we work on together, Faith for Just Lending. I think that people can Google Faith for Just Lending and look at all the proposals and and the the policies uh, for which we advocate. In terms of me, the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, NALEC or NALEC.org, N-A-L-E-C dot O-R-G, is a way to see. Uh, the work that we have been doing, and and for those of us who ha- who speak Spanish, most of our work is both in English and in Spanish, so we can reach as many people as possible. So NALEC dot uh, org, and of course, uh, I'm honored to to have partnered with the ERLC and so many others on this and so many other issues. Can I say muchas gracias, many thanks for all the good work that you're doing, highlighting this. To, to our listeners, pastors, lay people, policymakers, uh, your voice is important to, to highlight uh, the suffering and vulnerability of so many people. Mm-hmm. So many thanks to you for that. Well, certainly we um, appreciate that. And we are so thankful for, yeah, we're, we're really thankful for your partnership and, and your help and um, in all of our advocacy efforts on this issue, you know. We uh, see each other quite frequently as we're in these meetings and um, just appreciate your voice and your your perspective that, you know, I, I myself can't provide. Look, I just want to add, Brooke, that you, your contributions and insights are both awesome and necessary. And we're watchful. We are so watchful that uh, the, the OCC rules continue to protect the most vulnerable and I want to highlight that your voices are critical uh, for this. And so whoever's listening, you, we should get involved uh, because these are our brothers and our sisters. And, and if you're asking the question, am I my brother and sister's keeper? If you're asking that question, the simple answer is yes. Yes, we are our brothers and our sister's keeper. And so I'm thankful for that. Yes and amen. Well, Reverend, thanks again for coming on Capital Conversations to uh, to help our listeners understand more about this issue and where they can get involved. Links to to uh, Faith for Just Lending and NALIC and and all all the different things that we've talked about today, as well as some resources up at erlc.com that are new and fresh and ready for for folks to read and dive into, will be available in the show notes. Thanks again. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member. 
in your community who you think might also benefit from what Reverend Seguero had for us today. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. Resources from today's episode, especially those ones that we mentioned here at the end, are all available in the show notes and as always at urlc.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.